podcast ain't played nobody. It's the snake eating its tail. The Georgia-Alabama conundrum presented by Kirby Smart. Um, Alabama, the fan base, the culture, the psychotic level of expectation, all of it gets the national pub bill. Mm -hmm. But I know of another land. I know of another place. It's a mystic place. It's about 45 minutes south of Atlanta. And it's called Central Georgia. It's where an inordinate amount of sidewalk alumni live. And they all love him dogs. For years, Bill, let me tell you something you don't know. There was a coach named Mark Richt. Really? Bill, all that man did was, was win football games. And, and mold young minds. And lose control of the offseason. And he's gone now. Did you say Athens is south of Atlanta? No, no, no. I said central Georgia. This has nothing to do with Athens. I thought I heard the word this south in there. I was really confused. Not the, not the university seat. Okay, Athens, gotcha. Athens is due east. Okay, almost, yeah. almost inside the Atlanta Metroplex. In a couple more years, you'll be able to just, your spaceship <laughs> will sit in traffic on the way. No, Bill, I talk of a land from which I hail. In which you really have two decisions. Whoa, hey, you're hot now. Woo. Cheer for the dogs, or you can, you can be a pariah in that society. I guess there's some Auburn folks, but not really in the part of Georgia where my people are from. And Bill, these, these Georgia fans are simultaneously obnoxious, terrible to deal with, but at the same time, they're slighted. They're a step, they're a step underneath the Alabamas of the world and Florida, and any other program in the Southeastern Conference that won a national title. It got particularly bad when Gene Chizik's Auburn won a national title because that was sort of it for them. That was pretty much everybody. South Carolina up and got one. It would have been, whew, it would have been redneck seppuku north of the Nat line. Not good. Um, and so I, I, I tell you this tale so that you may pick up the, the story from here and tell me, um, how fast Kirby Smart is going to win a national title in Athens because he has to win a national title yep. probably this year, probably immediately, by going undefeated and beating his former employer by 28 points in the Georgia Dome. Yeah, I mean, you know, he might have two years. They might give him two years uh, to make this. Now, this, is, um, this is a good way to kind of jump back into one of the storylines that we finished last season with, which was that Nick Saban's success... Uh, is driving people insane. Um, and it's, I mean, I, I, you know, it's like, it's kind of like being an NBA general manager when your main rival has like LeBron James. What can you, like, you can't do anything. Like you have to, you, he, they're never, they, they have LeBron James and you're going to have to figure out how to, you know, trade for superstars and, 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 you know, mortgage away your future or your soul for superstars or, or build depth or be patient or whatever. Being patient really isn't an option though. You, you, when your rival wins championships, <clears throat> you get very angry. And when the same guy does it many times, even no matter how rare that is. And that's, that's the thing. Nick Saban right now, the run he is on is incredibly rare. Like something, I mean, it, at this point, it's longer than than Pete Carroll's real run, uh, biggest, uh, best run at USC, I guess. Um, you know, it, it was it's 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 a level that probably hasn't been established since what Nebraska in the mid '90s or Florida State in the '90s too, I guess. Um, and so, 
you know, Mark Rick got fired for winning after winning 10 games a year the last five years. He had that little funk, and he emerged from it. And last year, they, they basically, um, as I pointed out in the preview, my preview that went up today, they, they had a bad month. They were spectacular in September. They got blown out by Alabama and then lost Chubb in October and really just fell into a hole for a couple of weeks. And then they emerged. They were kind of unlucky to only beat Georgia Tech and Georgia Southern by the small margins they did. They Statistically, they had those games in, in pretty much complete control, um, and it would have been unlucky to lose, and that, that wouldn't have let anybody off the hook. But they were fine in the last month of the year. They were great, then they were bad, and then they were fine. Uh, and that's a year after... Um, you know, the, well, a year after winning 10 games, three years after winning 12 games and coming within a batted pass, basically, of the national title game, more or less. Um, this was Mark Richt had a very, very high level program. As I pointed out last year, only one other team, uh, there, there are only two teams that have finished in the, in the F plus top 15 four times in five years Alabama and Georgia. But Rick never got the bounce. He didn't get the the one break. He didn't get Cam Newton like Gene Chizik did. He didn't get the the breaks when he absolutely needed them. He his best teams were kind of timed wrong to to a certain degree, and he he never won the national title. And so they they dumped him. Um, I was always kind of I was always kind of rooting for Rick because I like those stories, the Tom Osborne stories, the ones where you know you just you produce at a very high level for a very long period of time, and eventually you get the breaks you need. Uh, he had 15 years and never got them, <laughs> but um, but I mean, it, you know, it took Osborne 20, so uh, maybe it would have worked out for him. Maybe it wouldn't have, but that's that's that, that's no longer a concern because Mark Richt isn't the isn't the head coach anymore. Now they got Kirby Smart, and he's got yeah, he's got two years or so uh, to win a national title for them. Otherwise, uh, the 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 soul selling will have been for naught. The problem with your your analogy is that this isn't even a division rival situation. The madness right. created by Saban. Let me give you. Uh, let me ask you, Bill, Mister Mister Numbers Guy, how many times have Alabama and Georgia played each other since the modern era dawned? By the way, the modern era is 1992, and so the division structure, all that, Arkansas, South Carolina. How many times, Bill, have have those teams played each other? Yeah, like four or something, something Eight. ridiculous. Eight. Yeah, Eight. like we we talked about that when we were talking about the you know our, our eliminating divisions plan over the summer. Yeah, they were, um, they they were kind of on this parallel course, and, and Alabama kept finishing higher. And then the one shot they got in twenty twelve, um, where they were in position to pull the upset, they got down to the six or whatever it was. Um, you know, they didn't. They needed a good break. They got a bad break, and that was that. And then, and Alabama just continued to cruise at a in, in a parallel, uh, a couple of states to the west. They just kind of cruised at that altitude that Georgia could never could never reach. Culturally, Alabama's effect is it's almost conference wide. I think there's a collection of teams in the SEC that don't consider themselves well. Privately, they don't consider themselves capable, equipped to to mirror that or compete with that. And, you know, we can argue where that Mendoza line is, but those programs who feel like they should be competing with Alabama or, or who historically have competed against Alabama, it, it is a madness that is created within them, especially now uh, that we're at whatever, however many titles over however, however many years. Uh, and I'm talking specifically about, let's just say, what Auburn, Florida, I think even Tennessee feels this way, although, again, I think that may be the heart of the Mendoza line. Um, Georgia was never historically an Alabama rival. They sit next to each other. They're neighbors. You know, I, I don't need to explain all that to you if you're from this part of the country. But 
I think recruiting set this off initially. I think the struggle, I think Rick's struggle against Florida specifically kind of set, set it off. Yeah, it was, was it was a pile of tinder. We're talking about Alabama, but Florida, losing to Florida a lot, uh, very much didn't, it did him no favors. So now you look at a guy in smart, and it's it's just an, it's a, it's exceedingly hard to sell this guy on paper. Except that if you're in Georgia, you're elated right now because of the the just excess Georgianess of him. And Rick was by no means a foreign element. I mean, I think he represented and embodied the program in the state about as well as you could, especially sort of the modern Georgia. But Smart is, as any Georgia fan you talk to within thirty seconds will tell you, the son of a high school coach. Um, I the, one of the most notable things uh, uh, regarding Georgia this offseason was that they held a satellite camp with Georgia Southern, which was for years very much a no-no, very much a little brother type thing, but mainly for Georgia Southern's part. They were not always an FCS program. It's where my parents went to college. It's what I That was the team I grew up watching and cheering for. And hardcore Georgia Southern fans have always – always wipe their hands clean of, of UGA. And now you have co-hosting satellite camps. By the way, the third school in that group was Colorado State. The 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 joining factor there is the, is that all three of those head coaches have Georgia ties and that they're all sons of Georgia high school coaches. Smart is, according to a Georgia fan, going to seal off, close off, whatever. I mean, pick your pick your recruiting cliche. They want to win back Atlanta from Alabama. Now, Alabama doesn't own Atlanta. No, no particular team does. But when you get into the elite battles, I think maybe that was – you'd have to ask a Georgia fan, honestly, Bill, but I think between the, the Florida losses and the 2012 SEC championship, I think the losing elite talent in Atlanta was what was, – was more blood in their eye than anything else. And that's, I mean, that's fair. Uh, all I, I mean, I, all I can, like, I kind of, I get all the reasons why fans would have been frustrated. I, um, I was more, I almost used the word disappointed. I don't think that's quite right either. But uh, the athletic, the athletic director is the one who need, who has to look beyond specific little, de- little things and look at the big picture. And the big picture was that Georgia was playing at a, at a consistently high level that it, it had never achieved before. Um, for all the talk about. Sleeping Giants, most of the, you know, most of the programs we think are Sleeping Giants or have a higher ceiling than they have, like every, everybody seems to have a higher ceiling than they have, but very few actually hit that ceiling. Um, and so... Should you come up with a secondary term then of like, you know, all things being ideal is the ceiling and then all things being realistic is what? Maybe the, well, crown, I mean, the, have, the crown molding? We have, <laughs> we have a hundred plus years of history to kind of understand what a realistic uh, ceiling is. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean you should accept like, Hey, you know, if you're, if you're a Maryland or somebody like that, Hey, we've never been great. We should never try. Of course you should try, but it just comes with a, you, you have to, when you're trying to do something that you've never done in a hundred plus years uh, or can never consistently done in a hundred plus years, uh, that requires a level of patience. And I, re- I realize it's funny talking about patience uh, when you're talking about firing a guy who was there for 15 years. Um, but once you, to me, once they kept Rick after, um, uh, what was that? Oh, nine, 10, when they really struggled and when they went like, you know, six and seven and eight and six or whatever, once they kept him from that point, he rebounded and he was kind of back to where, yes, 
Georgia needed to be. It's there, there are multiple fan theories on this, and it, a lot of it goes back to 2002, which may have been their best shot at a title other than 12. If Terrence Edwards doesn't drop a pass against Florida, they win that game. They're in the national title. Maybe. I mean, they, there were two undefeated teams that year. So even then, I mean, that was a timing issue as much as anything. That, that was a bad year to have your best team. But, yeah. I, I still think, I mean, without digging up, I have to go and look at all the old BCS numbers. Which, by the way, just to throw us in a ditch for a second, it is awesome to go and look and see how the BCS rubric was so different season to season. The constant, like the perpetual overcorrection and, and this thing's out, this weighs more, this weighs less. Year to year, it's just, it is awesome. Yeah, or, 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 maddening. Or, or maddening and frustrating, you know, your call. Um, I'm an agent of chaos, right. Bill. I enjoy it. Well, and see, and I, I tinker with my crap all the time. There's a chance I might have new SMP Plus ratings out before the season starts. I've been tinkering. What? Like I've been, like I've been working on this special teams thing that might or might not take. So wow, look at I that. Get, you got great tinkering. I get tinkering, but what, what they did every single year was, oh, this didn't work out like we thought it would. We better change it to where it will. And that's, that ruins the whole point. It, like, as soon as they started you know, messing with the form as well, the computers didn't give us the result we thought it should have. So we should change this. They should have just removed the computers altogether. That was the thing that drove me crazy. They weren't trying to make it better. They were reacting to what they disliked about the year before. And it just – and it was uh, – most of the time, you know, as I always go back to with the playoff committee or the BCS or whatever, most of the time they got it as right as they could. Most of the problems we had with the BCS were that, it, that you couldn't choose three teams. That's fine. But I, it just it, – it, every single time they made one of those tweaks, it, 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 it was a very clear reminder of um, – of just the reactive, silly, political nature of, of this sport, which, of course, we get a – we get a reminder of every single day, pretty much. But um, <clears throat> yeah, no, that drove me crazy. The end. Why do you like Jim Cheney so much? He adapts. I, I like a guy who can run. Um, I, I, you know, having a system is good. Like having the Mike Leach system, where you kind of know, you know, the the slot receivers are going to have about this many targets per game. It's kind of fun for me when I'm previewing because I can compare from year to year and and see like pretty clearly like the inside receivers, the outside receivers, whatever. These were the plays that weren't working as well, and that's fun. Um, but I love the guys who adapt too, who just basically survey the land and say, okay, here's what we're good at, here's what we're not. Um, so here are the plays I'm going to run to avoid what we're bad at. Here are the plays I'm going to run to, to maximize what we're good at. We're going to craft an offense around this. So at Tennessee, if that means you've got um, uh, what, Hunter and, 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 and uh, Patterson? Yes. Yeah. Uh, then you're going to be – and you've got Tyler Bray – uh, who's pretty good at, at reading things pretty quickly and getting the ball out of his hands. We're going to be throwing quite a bit uh, to the perimeter, short, and everything else. We're going to create a, an offense around these two receivers and, a, and our big, lanky quarterback. Uh, then he's going to go to Arkansas where he's got a shaky passing game and two really good running backs. We're going to run the ball a ton. We're going to be Brett Bielema physical football. And then he goes to Pitt and loses his workhorse running back right before the season uh, and builds an offense basically around a receiver and two freshman running backs. And they, they, they regressed be, you know, because they were using freshman running backs, but I think the results were still better than what maybe we anticipated when Connor went out. Um, 
Like, I just like that he basically take, surveys the land and says, here's what we're going to do. This is what we're good at. And, and uh, you know, instead of forcing kind of square peg in a round hole, if you don't have the right pieces for your system, um, he adapts. And, and I think that's a really good quality to have. You can either can work, but he's good at adapting. And that's why I like him. Uh, to put a bow on Georgia, we'll move on. Uh, it's going to be a transition year. You, you can't really get away from that. Well, you can't bring it. You can't create regime change as as defined as this one, and not have some point of transition, and that that could involve some shakiness. Also, they might start a really young quarterback. Well, that's yeah. The start is the issue. Like, I mean, I, I think overall the the transition isn't that big if you're just looking at coaching and everything else. The defense is, uh, you know, they're they're keeping the three four structure. They've got now a master of the three four running. You know, as as the head coach. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking the defense will, will be pretty, pretty okay. Um, the offense, if healthy, Nick Chubb is probably the best running back in the country. And when you've got that and you've got, uh, an offensive coordinator who will, who won't try to pass just because he likes to pass, um, that, that'll probably mean pretty good things. Now the, the issue for Georgia this year is that like, you know, going by the win probabilities, I think what three, Three or four of probably their five hardest games come in the first five games of the year. Um, you know, the North Carolina, you know, my, my numbers liked Georgia a decent amount, but North Carolina out of the gates, they're at 61% for that game. They're at 67 for Missouri, which could be, I mean, Missouri still might not have an offense, but they'll have a good defense and against a freshman quarterback in his first road start. That could be tricky. Then you got at Ole Miss. Then you got Tennessee. After that, you've got a ton of wins. And the thing about it is, if you beat Tennessee at home with the schedule that they have remaining at South Carolina, Vanderbilt, Florida, Kentucky, Auburn, they could very quickly become the SEC East favorites. That, I'm going to say something unpopular. It would be more interesting to watch an Alabama-Georgia SEC championship than it would be for the already you know already in pen in blood and in ink Tennessee has to win the division all this all this um, I'm trying to think of a not swearing word all this stuff that floats around um, Nashville and East Tennessee that this is it this stupid concept this like weird framework we've put up on like make or break for Butch it, to me it would be more interesting to see a George Alabama matchup oh, gotcha. now also the equity that he, that smart would build in the first year if he's able to come out and beat a favorite with some big old fat finger quotes in the air in that there's, I think a lot of deficiencies inside of Tennessee and around Tennessee right now. If Georgia were to able to, were able to win this division, it would be, it would be kind of a, a groundswell for him in building that recruiting oh, yeah. that he's promised. So yeah, this actually offers him an opportunity. I think expectations considering they just fired a guy who won 50 games in five years. Um, the expectations are actually kind of low this year. And I think honestly, I, I, I mean, you can't, you never know about the freshman quarterback situation. Maybe Chubb can carry those games by himself um, or Chubb and defense, I should say, because their defense really was actually quite good last year. Um, you know, if they, no, I mean, they've got, you know, as, as tricky as the early season is, no matter the North Carolina game doesn't matter. If they, as long as they win one of two at Missouri and at Ole Miss, and obviously Missouri is the far more likely of those two, uh, if they if they're one and one in conference play and they beat Tennessee, they're two and one with the tiebreaker, with South Carolina, Vanderbilt, Florida, Kentucky, and Auburn left. Um, yeah, like use North Carolina to figure out what you've got. Don't, the result of that game doesn't matter, although they'll probably win. Honestly, um, 
Like that's you've you've got it. That's that's a perfect layout for you. As long as you win one of two on the road and beat Tennessee, you're you're kind of the SEC East favorite. And and I think the fact that that's not kind of the common knowledge or the co- the conventional wisdom, so to speak, that this is Texas uh, Tennessee's to lose no matter what. Um, that somehow plays into Kirby Smart's hand. He should be, I, I mean, the title of this piece is, you know, there's no grace period. He has to win immediately, but I kind of, mm-hmm. that's me. I don't really necessarily feel that from Georgia fans. I think the second year is going to be the big one for, for Bill, I'd, I'd like you, I'd like to introduce you to some Georgia fans. Well, okay. The, the ones I know online. So anybody who, re, you know, at dog sports or Senator Blutarski's that that's basically my, my Georgia fan uh, experience. And I do think that, um, expectations are quite the, the the ceiling isn't quite as high maybe because simply because of the freshman quarterback i don't know but um that's possible he's, i just he's got an opportunity here i want to live in a world i want to roll around in a world where a georgia team that's lost to ole miss beats a tennessee team that's beaten florida i just want that i don't have any i don't have any numeric insight to add before we get out of georgia I just want maximum anxiety in the SEC East. Can we, you know, as personally, I prefer flipping that to where they they lost to Missouri and beat Ole Miss, but that's just me. I'm, you know. Oh, I'm not. I'm not hoping that they they lose to Ole Miss for any sort of partisan alumni reason. Yeah, I just want, the, I want the chaos and the psychology that comes. Of events. Yeah. It's also a Georgia program that, that gets rid of Mark Rick, who I don't think ever lost to Ole Miss. And then going to Oxford, let's say you lose by double digits because you're still working things out on offense. And then you come home and you beat a Tennessee team that beat Florida by two touchdowns. This is what I want. My last word on, on Georgia, like, I, I, I know, like you and Bud wrote a piece saying it's probably time for Rick to go. I understand that I was always kind of in the minority. And I really, let me say this, I, I kind of regret that now because I've seen it because just watching what's happened since, I don't know if that was right. It felt very right at the time, but it's like you wrote in your piece, this was a program with Rick that would that would kind of wax and wane. It would dip. It would look alarmingly inefficient and then and then right itself. Well, and I, I, I mean, part of this, too, was luck. They, they were unlucky at bad times, and that's something that's not going to sit well with fans. Fans don't care about luck. They want you to win anyway. Um, and so that that was part of the deal, but no, yeah, no, I just they were. I so can't even concerned. remember if I wrote it at the time, but if if in any any one of those earlier years, if Rick wins a national title, it, it just it changes the color of the whole thing because then you start looking at Bob Stoops, and yeah. I do think I do think that's a comparison you can start making because it's not that Oklahoma fans aren't infuriated when they lose, you know, it's not that Oklahoma fans were okay with with losing to Clemson in the in the semi. It's that there's just a perpetual you know you you can't remove the equity of a national title from a coach yeah they, unless aside, you're from, aside from the most insane fans for the most part stoops has always been a level away from the hot seat even after disappointing years like 2014 it was basically he needs to do something this year or he might be on the hot seat soon it was never like he's got to win this game or he's fired and rick faced that about 78 times uh, and he survived 77 of them and, and kudos to him for that but um, no, I mean, yeah, he didn't have that feather in the cap. He he was always his feathers were all well. We 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 could have had you know our timing been better, or you know if this drop or this bounce or whatever, and it just never worked out. But you know, final word here is that I mean, Georgia with this move completely and totally sold its soul, it, it, right down to you know getting the the state government to help out 
uh, with that whole the you know Kirby's rule or whatever we were calling it uh, in March in the spring, and like that's it. You you've sold your soul for wins, and it still might work out just fine for you. You might be totally okay with that decision because it might bring you what you were hoping for. It's just it better. Otherwise, you just pulled a, a Minnesota and got rid of Glenn Mason for for some uh, you know somebody succeeding at a level you have not sustained ever before over that long a period of time. Uh, you got tired of only winning that much and you wanted to win more and it could backfire. It pro- Honestly, it probably won't. This will probably work out pretty well. Um, but it has to work out really well. Before we get to reader questions, um, Bud Elliott put up a pretty interesting post this morning at Tomahawk Nation um, taking kind of a rather predictable concept of coach rankings and then splitting the coach rankings up just in terms of your generic coach ranking of, you know, X guy does the best job and this guy is the 15th and the 20th best. And what Bud did was he looked at the list and then applied it against the resources that he feels that each coach has in, in, in a tier system. And this is almost, well, this is specific to recruiting. Um, and so what he did was he, uh, he took a Fox sports ranking and then he, he ranked the coaches that he felt were at elite schools, one through nine, and then the overachievers. The overachievers, of course, for the purposes of this podcast, are far more interesting. <laughs> um, but it's it's an interesting way to look at it. And I don't know. I don't even know if you've read the, read this this morning, but I, I don't know. Maybe it, it, it's it's fascinating to look at programs, even just purely in recruiting. We're, we're talking. We keep talking about tiers in this sport. It keeps coming up, right? You and I have been debating relegation and mid-majors and 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 does everyone just congeal into one giant mid-major conference which by the way a spoiler alert uh we learned last week in rhode island (laughs) the aac does not want to do that um it's it's interesting because well it's it's really interesting anytime you have a list of guys where you know david cutcliffe and ken niamatanolo are ranked next to each other and then right and then next to them is bobby petrino because those are three like very distinct recruiting situations um but i guess the common thread is that for for the maybe maybe the over overachievers list that bud has and let me just run them off real fast so overachievers he has number one gary patterson number two mark d'antonio number three david shaw number four bill snyder number five chris peterson number six bobby petrino seven nia matinolo eight cutcliffe nine kyle whittingham tom, uh, ten tom herman and then eleven dan mullen there is very little in common program to program here. Geography, acceptance rates, resources, budgets, recruiting footprint. The through line is that for all the setbacks that are placed against each one of those programs, all those guys have overachieved. I think Peterson at five is a little strange because I don't know how you look at his body of work at Washington. For, for it, as far as the Pacific Northwest and the West Coast goes, Washington is at an advantage. Um, but the rest of the – like, I mean, Shaw – he didn't build the empire, but I definitely think he maintained it. D'Antonio made a program. Patterson made a program. Cutcliffe made a program. Whittingham made a program. Um, I think that's the, that's the through line here, is that you, you sort of made a program or you overachieved dramatically in relation to what you were put against. Like, like I think Nia Matanolo is a great example. Or I guess Peterson of Boise. If you're well, right, at I mean, Boise. Peterson still like Peterson at Boise until like the last what, year or two. He was he would he was number one on this list. He was yeah. tops on the list, and so if you look at it like that, and then you know then he slumped down a little bit. And now he's back up to fifth. I think that kind of makes sense. So I think my problem. I, I'm looking at it now. My my immediate issue with this 
Well, I mean, I, you know, it's it's pretty good for you know categorizing too. Hugh Freeze at an elite school, uh, you know, it kind of goes to that Georgia historical thing. There, there was mm-hmm. nothing elite about. There was very little elite about Ole Miss between 1970 and, and like 2010. Fifteen know? minutes ago, right. And so I struggle with thinking about him. But I mean, I think Bud's thinking here is that Ole Miss is clearly a school that, with the right guy, can recruit at an elite level. And we know that because Hugh Freeze did. Now, yeah, I, I think he's, he's kind of getting dinged for it. But yeah, I, mean, I think he's, Bud maybe drew that line and put Freeze up there because of the recruits he pulled right, in. Right, and I, mean, I, I assume that's it, yeah. Yeah, not what the program is or was. Um, at, you know, the, the, in the elite ranking, I'll run it down real fast. Number one, Saban. Number two, Meyer. Number three, Harbaugh, Fisher, Sweeney, Stoops, Brian Kelly, Les Miles, and Hugh Freeze. Uh, kind of arbitrary there. That Yeah, the Freeze one sticks out just because of the program. But then, you know, Bud talked a lot about this on Twitter today. Sweeney, Dabo, Clemson. Feels strange, you know. But it's you can't argue it. I'm not, I don't want to argue it. I'm just saying, again, relative to the history of the programs around them, Michigan, Florida State, you know, Notre Dame, Ohio State. Um, so yeah, obviously the overachievers list is more interesting to us because it's guys who also, I don't see a lot of movement on this list of people that I think are going to go anywhere anytime soon. That's an interesting thing to me. Um, talking to agents and assistant coaches there, I see a lot of lifers here. Obviously Dan Mullen is going to be perpetually seeking out a job. Um, I think Kyle Whittingham would be on the move. Um, you know, jokes aside, I think Petrino and Louisville are getting back into a groove and I, I don't, I mean, Really did, would depend on the job to see where Bobby would leave. Um, Snyder, obviously. You know, Shaw, I think, he, I think he becomes a really fun and sexy name every December. But, again, kind of the same deal. He's, he's built such a unique apparatus there. Um, can you imagine Mark D'Antonio at any other program? Because if, if you're Mark D'Antonio and you leave that program, you got the most – to fit into the Dan Rubenstein uh, uh, bingo narrative of uh, what is it the the disrespect of Michigan State, right? You got like probably the highest profile program you could coach at without having to do more of the forward facing stuff, right? Like you get to do the whole blue collar. I don't like to, we don't like to talk about ourselves much crap, but then also still recruit at a pretty high level. So if D'Antonio goes any further, if he, if he goes any higher in college football, he's going to have to change who he is. Is my argument right? Yeah, and this whole this whole idea, you know, it is impossible to actually rank because you're asking to compare Bill Snyder to Nick Saban, um, like when we're ranking coaches, and how do you possibly do that? Uh, but I, I, I do, you know, this goes back to my idea of, of, you know, team sports come down to talent acquisition, talent development, and talent deployment. And some coaches are um, so great at acquisition that they only have to be decent at uh, development and deployment to win a ton of games. And, and maybe they're not even ama- so amazing at acquisition. Maybe it's just that they're good at maximizing like the, the, like, like Alabama. Saban's a great recruiter because he, he, he not only takes advantage of Alabama being Alabama and always signing good guys, but he's, he's kind of exceeded what Alabama would usually do recruiting. But a lot of these guys, I mean, how do we, uh, what's a good example? Maybe maybe Jimbo is the best example on this list anyway, or Brian Kelly. Like, great, you're you're signing a you're signing top ten classes at a school where you're supposed to sign top ten classes. That's not necessarily um, God, every single freaking. Got to get rid of that landline. Seriously, I, there, that was an eight hundred number. I have n- absolutely no idea why we have a landline. Got to get rid of that landline. Um, anyway. It, it is always a tricky thing, but the success comes from those three things. Whether you're 
taking advantage of what school you're at and, and reeling in a bunch of really good high talent guys, or you're trying to make up ground. That's what Patterson and D'Antonio and everybody do. They take good recruits and then they develop, they develop them really well. And they have their scheme down to where they kind of know how they're going to deploy guys. Uh, it doesn't have to be the most creative thing with Patterson. It kind of was, I mean, his defense is creative. His, the, the, the offensive changes he made two years ago were, were kind of on the extreme. Um, but that's how you do it. Like you, if, if you don't sign classes like Saban Meyer, et cetera, you have to make up ground and, and Snyder be is, is obviously kind of the, the most extreme example of that signing, you know, in the nineties, he was signing more high profile recruits than he is now. And, and the difference is obvious. Um, but even then he wasn't signing top five classes by any means. He was just, he was developing those guys amazingly well. Like, like he would like in that piece I wrote a couple of years ago, he was talking about, you know, cornering guys in the locker room. How did you improve today? Tell me right now how you improved today. Um, like he, his development side and the simplicity of his system, all of it worked so well together. And that's why he got elite results for so long when in 11 games, however many years in a row, um, a lot, no, but there are just, there are a bunch of different ways to win and it's hard to compare Saban to Patterson because their jobs are so completely different, but they get the results. I'm, I'm, I continue to be convinced that TCU is the best job that you don't think is one of the best jobs in college football. And, and I get that one from what I see on paper and visited the campus and I look at their numbers, as many numbers as you can get from a private school. And then also talking to other coaches. I mean, you're, you're sitting in a really, really nice university in the Metroplex in Dallas. It's just really hard to compete with that when you're trying to lure a guy away. And yeah. I think that's why, I mean, that's why he stayed. The other thing that um, jumps out at me is a trend that I'm seeing in talking to folks, and that is fit. Um, it was a little bit of a cliche for a while, but if you look at the elite school list that Bud made and the overachiever list that Bud made, there is a stronger need for fit at the overachiever level or yeah. schools where you have to compensate and I hear that a lot now from ADs or people at universities that aren't the, I don't know, 15 best jobs in college football, so really everybody else. So let's look real fast. D'Antonio, gosh, does he fit Michigan State? We already talked about that. <laughs> David Shaw, man, he really fits Stanford, right? Bill Snyder, K-State, Chris Peterson, I think. I know there's been so much written about this already, but I do think he fits Washington extremely well. He obviously fit Boise very well. Uh, Kenny Amatsunolo at Navy. Cut is probably the definition of this in terms of fit, expectation, time, you know, the program valuing what he brought and what, you know, the time that he would take. Um, those are the ones that jump out at me. Like I said, Whittingham and Mullen are guys I think that aren't necessarily fit to their programs. They've just done a good job. Um, it's, a, it's interesting to me how you value fit, how you evaluate fit, but it's something I hear more and more often. Whereas when you look at some of the bigger schools, I feel like they're a little more interchangeable. We've talked about, we talked all uh, at the end of last season about Jimbo Fisher going to LSU, replacing Les Miles. Um, Brian Kelly, I think, is as close to a fit as you'll get on an elite school level because Notre Dame is a historically elite football program with a unique set, uh, set of circumstances. The rest of these, you know, Dabo, I feel like, would work at Alabama. He may not have the same success that Nick does, but, you know, I think if you swapped Urban and Harbaugh tomorrow and took the traditions out of it, no one would notice. Um, and then I guess fit in terms of, you know, pre-NCA sanction rumors, freeze fits pretty well at Ole Miss in terms of, like, a guy who could come in and even put them on this list. 
um, you know, five years ago was probably the nadir of the Ole Miss program. And I, I saw the other day that, like, you know, they're putting like Fowler and Herb Street and the A crew on the Florida State game on Labor Day night. So it's a little crazy to see how far that program's come. And may immediately burn down very soon. We don't know. Um, all right, read your questions. Actually, one more thing about the the coaches. This does parallel soccer in so many ways. In that, like, not only are there the the, the coaches who you have the the coaches who are meant to thrive at the smaller clubs and get them to play above their heads and get them promoted, and then you've got this little pool of of coaches. You mentioned like Fisher being able to uh, to go back and forth between elite schools with no problem. It, it's kind of like you know that's the same deal in soccer where it takes a certain or at least a lot of people assume it takes a certain level of, of experience and, and everything to, to prove that you know how to handle elite players. Um, and that reminds me a lot of, like, Nick Saban, yeah, I mean, guys transfer, guys are, you know, told to transfer and all that, but he, he still, I think, keeps more four-star four guys on his third string um, than anybody else, except maybe Florida State at this point. Uh, just you know, the the guys will stick around and agree to be developed, even though they're five stars who could run the school at some other place. Um, there is so there's kind of a man management side of that that I think is really interesting. And and um, you know, you start to think about Gary Patterson coaching Alabama or Bill Snyder coaching Florida State versus um, oh, what would be a good example? Jimbo Fisher at well, Jimbo Fisher at Kansas State, Nick Saban at. Um, uh, well, I can't, I can't use Nick Saban at Michigan State, can I? Um, you know, t- Nick Saban at TCU, where you know there are just interesting fit questions there, and I think it goes across both lists. But anyway, reader questions. Reader questions. Do you have one you want to start with, or should we just jump yeah. in? Go for it. Uh, again, thanks for all your questions. We were, I don't think we've done reader questions in what, two weeks, three weeks? It's been Please. a while. It's been a while. We've stocked up again. Um. Oh, gosh, I don't even know where to start. Um, we did have, by the way, we, we we are bringing back box score here in a second. Um, but the box score submissions have laxed as well. So come on, that's get good, on it. That's good, that's good though, because I mean, I think we've got ideas for that during the season. We don't need any more submissions once we hit the season, other than maybe, hey, you might want to look at this game or something. Nicholas Genice or Janice asks, uh, or he says, "Hi guys, hi." You mentioned how Midwestern and West Coast teams would recruit the South for African-American players during the segregated 1950s and 60s. What are some modern, and then parenthetical BCS and after, examples of teams finding creative ways to catch up with their rivals in recruiting, especially when their rivals have natural recruiting advantages like location? P.S. Satellite camps brought me to this question. Another Michigan fan recently pointed out how the satellite camps are, are, are more to be on par with OSU than to compete with the SEC. OSU has one of the best recruiters and coaches in Urban Meyer, along with being a top state for producing talent. In addition, the media coverage and exposure is all for the recruits who are too young to have watched Michigan to uh, have watched when Michigan was consistently good. Teams like Oklahoma and Tennessee are in similar situations for recruiting. Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma, Oklahoma. last year. Right. Okay, uh, they're blue bloods having be, uh, having bitter rivals in unquestionably better states for recruiting. Okay, sure. Um. PPS, this picture is for Godfrey, and I guess we'll have to throw this up at some point. It's a picture of a train. Um, it's really a beautiful Photoshop. It's a train in, sp- in outer space. Uh, it has Michigan fans hanging out of it. It's a blue, and it's a, I guess, maize and gold train on fire, and it, the fa- the front of it is Harbaugh's face. So it's probably, I like the, probably I like the best the Photoshop we've received in a while. 
I, I like the flames. I like uh, the flames. Okay, so my first. When you drive it, when you drive a train through space, it will set on fire. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Um, the the immediate answer maybe it was because we were just talking about Bill Snyder, but Snyder raiding the JUCOs for talent in the nineties. Yep. Um, was um, it was immense. Um, and and again, man management came into play there too. He was able to get those guys and and put get them on the field quickly in position for them to succeed quickly. Uh, and it became like a plug and play thing with very very few four and five star athletes. He did get a few, um, but he didn't need very many because he was plugging so many holes like this. And he had such a high success rate with those JUCOs. Uh, that was the biggest thing about their success in the 90s. Was, and, and it was in their backyard, which is probably why he did it to begin with. Um, so it was, it was cheap recruiting, and it was so, so fruitful for them. The one I would jump on immediately would be like a Mike Leach at Texas Tech. If you read sort of the middle parts of his book, um, he saw a trend emerging, and he applied his system against it. He, I guess it is sort of another recruiting example, though, but he saw what kind of available talent was around in the state of Texas, and rather than fight it, um, it's actually in the Bryles book, too, where they talk about how the old, you know, the old two-back system and, and, you know, Billy Sims or the Veer and all that stuff had just been beaten to death in Texas and how kids were getting disinterested in applying those offenses to the talent that was naturally interested in scoring points and running around and working in space and not, you know, playing old triple option football. Um, I think a system can do that for you. A recruiting philosophy can do that for you. Um, There is something to be said of a branding initiative. It's overused and probably... Well, there's no probably about it. I mean, the, the millions that are spent collectively by Division One, or let's just even say Power Five teams every year on how they brand themselves to kids, I think is overdone. But you can't talk about the success Boise had in going into high schools in like Florida and California and Texas without talking about the what you know all the the non football things they did over a course of about ten years. Blue turf, ESPN scheduling, all that kind of stuff. They were sort of the they were a hashtag before a hashtag was really, you know, something that a kid would latch on to. Um, do you have any others? Those are the ones off the top of my head. Well, um, the, the, the flip side of Leach then is uh, programs like uh, Stanford loading up on fullbacks and tight ends and going big when everybody else was going small and fast. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's kind of the next step in the, in the evolution with, with Leach was, you know, that's what, that's what we see in these life cycles of innovation and everything else with offense is, you know, it, a new offense will emerge. It will be very successful because it takes advantages. Uh, it takes advantage of the way defenses are structured. So then defenses get restructured, uh, and and then you you bring in a new old idea to um, take advantage of that. And so if you're a step ahead in that regard, you can you probably aren't going to find a permanent advantage by any means because again people adjust. You have to continue to adjust, kind of. And that's what makes Leach so fascinating. He doesn't adjust at all. Like he's gonna he does what he does. Um, and sometimes it works really well. Sometimes it works okay. Uh, but he still he does what he does no matter what it, what the defenses are doing. Um, but no, that's 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 a way for you to find uh, an advantage is just figure out how to take advantage of of the of what your opponents don't offer and and try to offer it really strong. <laughs> uh, so the theme that's emerged here in our answers is that you have to be unique in in a very big way, and that's a risk. Most programs don't like to be unique. And elite programs almost, I would say, actively guard against it. 
Um, you know, and I know, oh, well, you, you just said, you know, you could run the power and that's what Michigan does. Yeah, but they're also, they're not going to go way out of their way in any way, shape or form. And, and really the extension that Harbaugh has become a PR magnet and, and they've done the satellite camp thing, that was necessity. They were an elite program that I identified. They had some systemic issues, and they're going about rectifying that. The first time that you know Michigan under Harbaugh strings together two or three years of ten or plus more, they're they're not going to do what they're doing right now. I'm not saying they still won't hold satellite camps. They won't be engaged in you know he won't be jumping in, in Migos videos, and he won't be doing you know he he won't be at the forefront of every single twitter conversation that's they're doing something right now to change and once they're established they're i mean look if you're successful you don't really want to you know you don't really want to curry change you don't really want to i mean and uh, and he's the mother of invention right most elite schools uh that are you know built mostly around recruiting uh, you get recruits by promising that you're going to get them to the pros and it's some new funky system that is emerging that really hasn't had a chance to succeed or fail uh, or or in its initial stages, maybe like the spread quarterbacks or whatnot, maybe in its initial stages, it did kind of fail to get those quarterbacks to the NFL, whatever. Um, you, as generic as it is, you kind of stick with the quote-unquote pro-style approach because that's what lands you those recruits. Um, and then if, you know, the, what's it, God, we're just filleting Saban all ep- uh, episode here. But, um, you know, what's one of the I'm things... I'm going to cry Saban, in the shower afterwards, so it's okay. One of the things Saban has done so well is is adapt to, like, you know, whatever, what you know, the pro-style term is meaningless now, but now he is... Uh, recruiting, look at you know, experimenting with mobile quarterbacks and tempo, and he's changed his defense a little bit to account for those things. He isn't just trying to; he's changed just enough. It's still Saban, uh, but he's changed just enough to kind of swallow the innovators as they come and try to to defeat him. And and that's what has really been impressive with him. All right, are we done with that one? Because I got a, the next one. So Purdue. Oh man, we got so many. Yeah, okay. Uh, we got a bunch of legit Purdue questions, and then a yeah. bunch of you just heathens on Twitter bothering well, me in the middle is, of my work. This day. was the funniest thing in the world. So everybody knows the Purdue. Well, not everybody, but listeners, regular listeners, know the inside joke about Purdue. Um, and so when Purdue hired a new athletic director yesterday, we got a bunch of Purdue fans who who kind of had two part tweets or emails where it was first like, "Ha ha ha, Purdue, you're going to spend a whole show on this, right?" But seriously, let's talk about this because blah blah blah. Like fans are so like fans are so annoying in so many different ways. But this is one of the level like that compulsion is one of the things I love. Like ah, I know this is an inside joke, but please uh, talk about this because it's serious to me. <laughs> um, the best example we got about this email about an hour ago from our friend Andrew Gregory. Um, Bill Godfrey, here's your requisite Purdue question, but a serious one. See. Uh, the Boilers finally stepped up and hired a new AD the other day, and Hazel is definitely on the hot seat for this coming season. If he's fired this fall, I think the easy choice would be the normal Big Ten, quote-unquote, most promising Matt Coach route, like going with P.J. Fleck. But would Purdue be a good rehab fit for, say, a fired Kevin Sumlin, Purdue alum, uh, or a pariah like Art Bryles? Is Bryles a viable choice for a team this winter hiring season? Uh, probably not. Uh, I recall that no. when Purdue hired Hazel... Uh, Jim Trestle was on campus just before the announcement as a final character slash fit interview on Hazel. Uh, there was buzz that Purdue might hire Trestle himself, but they would incur the NCAA sanctions he carried with him from the Ohio State firing. Is something similar hanging over Bryles? Is he free to just pursue whatever job he can get 
Uh, personally, I think that an athletic department with solid oversight procedures and a strong understanding from Browse could overcome the backlash to hiring him, but I'm not sure. I actually think they probably could handle the backlash, but they're not going to hire him. I don't see, I know Bryles thinks he's going to get a new, uh, another job in November, December, but I, uh, I just don't see it. Nope. I, no, I didn't see Louisville hiring Bobby freaking Petrino again. So there are things totally I don't see. Totally different. But um, I just, yeah, I, I think you could probably survive backlash if you really, really wanted to. I don't think anybody's going to want to survive that much backlash. Someone's going to happen. Someone though. Um, yeah, totally different. That would be, that would be interesting. I, I'm curious what, if, if someone really does kind of flame out here this year, man, with that schedule, um, you know, you could have a pretty good team that goes six and six. Um, like I, I'm, I'm, I don't, I, it'd be interesting to see which route he takes, whether he kind of goes the, pro assistant route again, whether he takes an offensive coordinator job, whether he drops down to the mid-major level again, or, you know, whether he is willing to kind of leave his area of the country, this area where he established himself, Texas, Oklahoma, uh, whether he's willing to kind of branch back out and go somewhere else and try to win somewhere else. So like, I, I, I mean, obviously you win a lot of games at Purdue. You're in the right division. Um, I just think we we're overestimating the concept of an alumni here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm really – I'm discounting that. But just in general, if you're a Sumlin and your options are assistant or mid-major head coach or <laughs> Purdue head coach, he might – that might be a good spot for him. I think that he would probably get a look by the NFL. Um, I know he would get Rooney ruled to death if he was oh, yeah. available. Um, so, I – Hi, I I don't know about that. He, um, all joking on Purdue's side, we we aren't we are not experts on the the goings and doings of what's happening in that administration. And based off of our listeners, and based off of the things that I've read that our listeners have sent us, they have issues larger than a single athletic director. They have issues larger than a single coach. I think that they have to blow up and reevaluate and figure out what they want to be and 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 how. They want to compete in certain sports and, and how that fits into what Purdue is. And so these are like really large, very broad topics that kind of signal that they aren't anywhere near they're, – they're not even near the ground, the base layer of how you would build something successful. And I'm not trying to be funny and I'm not trying to be a nihilist about Purdue, but it's, it's completely possible to build a, a successful program. I mean I don't – care what anybody says you're still making big 10 money you're still getting big 10 exposure and the first time that you beat a you know a, a top half big 10 team well the entire nation's going to notice you know it, it i don't know it doesn't have to be michigan and ohio state it could be michigan state it could be penn state it could be wisconsin you know it's uh it's not impossible it's i just got done talking about how i mean I, the situations are different, but I, I can tell you firsthand, you know, Houston Nutt was burning things to the ground in Oxford, and the roster was so insanely deficient, and they found a coach that fit what they wanted to do. And I, I'm not saying, you know, you go out and find your Hugh Freeze and you're automatically, you know, going to be a double-digit win team, but I'm saying college football has a habit of finding the very, very bottom and then rebounding somewhat quickly for certain programs. Now the problem is Purdue is just hasn't been this program. Purdue Purdue has almost seemed committed to, to fighting against the natural. I mean, in all things, there is a response, right? There's, there's a a bounce back effect. Purdue has just actively worked. It seems against that. 
Sumlin would be really interesting there because he would restore like the morale. It's just so low at this point. And like some of we, there are very obvious questions about what his, his ability to maintain a program, but in terms yeah. of walking in the door and, you know, patting people on the back, getting morale up and, and getting, you know, kind of bringing a swagger back to the program. Um, Obviously, he at Purdue he wouldn't inherit the same level of talent that he inherited from Mike Sherman at A and M. So it's not like he'd be, immediately be a threat to go eleven and two or whatever. But he could have kind of that immediate first or second year success that then turns into a couple of good recruiting classes, good by Purdue standards, of course, not like top two or whatever. Um, but like, so that would be I, I can absolutely see the draw of someone for Purdue. They're like, duh, like there's a lot of reasons why he'd be a draw uh, for Purdue. But it'd be kind of yeah. I'm I'm just curious about his motivation if he doesn't make it at A and M, which route he goes. The the NFL thing, even though obviously he wouldn't get a head coaching job, um, I wouldn't NFL rule it out. Out there, well, I I mean, I wouldn't I rule it out. Need I I think he would need to have a couple of of years as an assistant to get to like get rehabbed enough to to jump in. But you know maybe not. Shiano got a head coaching job right off so. Uh, as much as I hated the Lovey Smith hire in terms of logic, I think that's what Purdue needs. I think Purdue needs a a. I don't know what the analog is. There's no Bears coach. There's no pro coach. You go and pull like. Uh, am I secretly endorsing Tony Dungy for this job right now? I, I don't know, but like, they uh, need uh, that level because I uh, think you touched on something really strong there. Is that they need a. God, they just need to win a couple handshakes at this point. You know, yeah. they need to win. They need to win a couple booster meetings and a couple alumni events and get their their situation straight with their president, and then we'll start talking about how you're going to beat Michigan and Michigan State. God, I hate Dungy football so much. I I, I want nothing like that. He he makes Lovey Smith seem like creative and innovative on offense. But the thing, like, um, if you hire if you hire whatever that person is that is Lovey Smith, or let's just say it's Tony Dungy, which. By the way, this isn't happening. Um, you get 25 national sports writers going to Indiana to talk to him. They're going to be reinserted in a conversation. NFL people are going to notice. And then, you know, the Levy Smith experiment being really, really small right now, really short really right now, we don't know how that's going to translate. But that would help Purdue dramatically. I mean, Illinois wasn't in as dire a situation as Purdue is in. So I think I would start there and build out. Just focus on a four or five win season and beating Indiana. You know, don't don't <laughs> don't look at it as like, dear God, we're never going to be Michigan. You know, You're probably not. Um, yeah. Any more questions, Bill, or do you want to? Uh... There's a quick one here that we can. Uh, okay. You know. So I, and this one actually only came to me. Our friend Alex Ruggles uh, asks: Over the past ten years, your national champion has been one of three things: a Nick Saban coach team, nine eleven twelve fifteen. An Urban Meyer coach team, six eight fourteen, uh, or had the future number one pick at quarterback, oh seven LSU, twenty ten Auburn, twenty thirteen FSU. Now that's kind of bit like oh seven LSU. Um, no, actually, that's not even true. That they they had lost their number one pick by that point, hadn't they? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that one's not. But it's still, let's nine. We'll say nine of ten years then. Um, Given that, if you were betting on who would be champion, would you rather have Alabama, Ohio State, and Clemson to fit those three categories or take the field? Um, Alabama, Ohio State, or Clemson? That, that's, my, that's my answer. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, 
I mean, Ohio State's really going to struggle. They're, well, they're going to struggle by Urban Meyer standards this year because they have so much turnover in key places. Uh, so I don't really consider them a title contender this year, but they're still enough of one I to do. add a couple of percentage points to the to the equation. And Alabama and Clemson are clearly starting the year as the most obvious. So, yeah, I mean, I think I'd take those three. And I'm always a take-the-field kind of guy, but you, you put those three on the table, I'm probably going to take those three. I don't know where you and the S&P draw the line on, like, how many teams do you think are realistic shots at winning the national title? But I don't know. Without looking, I would say that there's 15 or 16 teams that would make sense if two of them were inserted into the national title in January. Uh, I would throw Ohio State in there. Oh, well, yeah, into the, into that big a pool, absolutely. But I was in, I was thinking in terms of, you know, three, four, five teams. I'm not sure I would pick Ohio State this year. They're absolutely top 15. Um, I think it really just depends on uh, we're talking about a pre-Oklahoma game, Ohio State, and a post-Oklahoma game, Ohio State. Um, because I don't know if the middle of the pack is caught up to, to, to jump them yet. And uh, I don't know. I don't, I, they sure did whoop Michigan. I mean, I'm speaking very generically here, but, but I mean, it's um, it wouldn't it wouldn't all be impossible to, to see Ohio State back in the playoff. No, yeah, no, not impossible. I'm just, you know, I'm not betting on them this year. But what yeah. I secretly want to talk about here is my false flag theory. Remember, Jim Harbaugh was actually much the way people are talking about how Trump is like actually a secretly uh, secretly a Hillary Clinton plant. This whole thing is like an orchestrated inside job. I think the same is true about Jim Harbaugh. I think he is actually on the Ohio State payroll. Don't at me, Michigan fans. All right. Are we ready for box score or you want to do more questions? We only did three. I was expecting to do like five or six. We've well, we have long answers. Um, is there, uh, we'll do uh, – let's do one more question, and then we'll get into the box score. Uh, I got one from – unless you found one, I got one from Joey Weaver here. Our friend Joey Weaver. We've a- answered a couple of his questions, I think, at this point. Um, from From the Rumble Seat, our Georgia Tech blog. Uh, I was listening to a recent episode of PAPN and heard Godfrey mention that although South Carolina had three straight 11-win seasons, their fans were crazy to think that it was actually going to change the program's trajectory into the future. I started mm-hmm. to feel very guilty uh, because heading into Georgia Tech's 2015 season, I wrote the, an article from the Rumble Seat about the team's opportunity to do exactly that. As for how that went in 2015, well, it didn't, but not the point. Um, the theory was that stringing together a series of strong seasons was the thing that needed to happen to change the narrative around a program and change the perceptions of recruits and fans alike. It goes back to what was mentioned about Baylor going into the off season. Today's high school seniors have never really known an unsuccessful Baylor football team as far as a, as far of a departure as that might be from the program's miserable long-term history. At some point, a really good season becomes a few good season, which then involve, uh, evolves into a good stretch of years. And eventually you're just a good football program. Right. Uh, normally, I approach things from a bit of a cynical "you are what you are" perspective, but with minimal opportunity to change that, aside from making exceptional or awful hires. Um, still, perception is a very much a reality with talented high school football players, and short-term change in perception feels like it could easily result in long-term change in programs' fortunes. So, question for you, you two is: Can a program truly change what it is simply what it is simply through a good hire and without massive overhaul and how it operates from a systemic standpoint? And if so, is the difficulty in making good hires the reason that more programs haven't done that? If not, can you explain more de- detail why it's so, so tough to change what you are, quote unquote, as a program? Uh, all right, so Ooh, a lot of stuff there. Um, yeah. Uh, first part first. Okay. South Carolina is not Georgia Tech. Okay. Start there. ACC is not the SEC. 
Georgia Tech's position relative to a, a, a once extremely fluid ACC is not comparable to South Carolina's plight against programs like Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, et cetera, so on. Um, okay. So that's where I would start there. So it's not a one-to-one comparison. Um, and then the very last thing, and then I'll let you handle the middle, he said, uh, "Can you?" I think he wants to separate the concept of overhauls and good hires. Good hires usually create overhauls. Yeah. Tom Herman at Houston overhauled. Uh, Jim Harbaugh at Michigan overhauled. Um, I mean, I can pull five or six more examples. Patterson at TCU, even though he was part of the system, instituted a massive overhauls once they got rid of Fran. In fact, it was sort of doing it under Fran's, under Fran's nose, um, as TCU boosters told me in that story last year. So um, don't separate the concept of, of overhauling. In fact, I w- you know what? I'll flip it back, and I'd say you'd be hard-pressed to find an athletic department that's being overhauled for success- in a successful manner to win football games, and that, that isn't being spurned, spurred along by a particular coach or coaching staff. That, that those are the guys cracking the whip. So my answer is based, you know, one of the things I end up saying 50 times per year in my previous series is hard jobs remain hard. So there is kind of a historical, these are the schools that are always going to recruit well, you know, Alabama. And this does, this list does change over time, but only so much. So you're going to have Alabama and Florida State and to whatever degree, Georgia and LSU and Auburn and Oklahoma and Texas and Ohio State and Michigan and USC, maybe UCLA. There are basically about 12 schools that are always going to recruit really well. Um, With a bad enough hire, they won't, but they're always one hire away from starting to recruit at a top 10 level again. Um, And what that means is all the other jobs, they're just, you have to continue to clear hurdles. Uh, You know, Bill Snyder's the go-to example today. Bill Snyder's a great example. He was winning 11 games a year and suddenly he wasn't. Um, It's just, it's, there are so many obstacles against you when you're at those jobs. You can certainly establish a higher level. I just watched it happen at my university. You know, Gary Pinkle inherited a program that had won seven games in two years, only been to two bowls in like 16 years. Um, and he established a new baseline where you really have to kind of make a bowl every year. You have to have a winning record. You have to do this and that. So that kind of change can absolutely happen. And, and within the, you know, when you make a good hire like that, if the right forces align, then you can either make an, a win, you know, win a national title or come really damn close. Um, Missouri came close a couple times. Kansas State came close a ton, especially in the 90s. Georgia Tech won a national title 25 years ago. Uh, 26 years ago. So um, short term, those things can happen. And long term, you can absolutely make a good hire that is that leaves your program in a better place. And then if you make another good hire on top of that, uh, another great hire even, then yeah, you can certainly establish residence. It's just it's you're always a couple of steps away from falling back to where you've been historically. K-State's closest national title was what, 98? Yeah. Um, yeah, that was the year they finally cleared that. Yeah, I mean, if there was a, uh, if there was a like a playoff or something, or if they were in a different conference than Nebraska, they they could have been to like three BCS title games. Um, but they went eleven and one in ninety seven. Then they, of course they lost in ninety eight. They went eleven and one again in ninety nine. There are three years there where they, I mean, were just inches from uh, a potential breakthrough. But for so many years they couldn't get past. Uh, uh, Nebraska, and then when they did in 98, they, they slipped up in the title game, and that was that. I just started thinking about why I want to spend signing day 2017 in Manhattan 
just because I feel like it would be the anti-signing day story in so many ways. Um, I, you know, K-State's one of those programs where I feel like we fall down the hole, and I don't even know how interesting it is to everyone else, but it just defies so many expectations. It's just something I, – I don't know how many times we've mentioned K-State on this show, but they will never not be interesting. I really do hope they find a way to transition on after Yeah, Snyder. I mean, I hope, that, I, I hope that Snyder has one, another good year too. He, he really – Yeah. Like, the, it could – Last year could have been like you know because they won the Big Twelve in '03 and then '04 or '05 they quickly slid. Um, we could have seen the start. I mean, the last three years now they they've won uh, what twenty three games in the last three years after winning twenty one in twenty eleven twelve. So the slide is already kind of there. I just I do kind of hope he gets one more one more nice run. I'm not real sure that's going to happen. But Bill, bingo, ready? Yep. Okay. Do you have your Do you have your graphic pulled up in front of you? Uh, I do now, yes. It's been a while. I forgot my song and dance. This is blind box score bingo, because apparently I say that too fast. Mom. Uh, <laughs> the point of blind box score bingo is to stump um, our resident robot, Bill Connolly. You find a game that you find to be strange, interesting, deceiving in its nature in the box score. Strip the proper names and nouns off of it. Put it in a little, like, P P and G file, a little JPEG. You can even throw me a TIFF. I don't care. Um, and send that. Then send the ori- a link to the original box score. Email it to me and only me, sgodjr at sbnation.com, uh, so that I may present it to Bill on this here fine radio uh, podcast program, and he will try and guess what happened in the game. Um, I think we've, we've done some PSAs before. Don't always send us close games. Don't always send us uh, stop sending us Toledo and Arkansas. Um, at this point, you guys have tapered off a little bit, so just send me some cool stuff. And then, um, Bill, do we want to go ahead and set a ground rule as we are, like, what, three weeks away from from new football? Do you think that it would be okay, or do you think that you would notice if you got, like, if we do it, when we do our show in week two, if I gave you a week one box score from 2016, is that okay? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of, we, we need to talk about this, obviously, but I was thinking about, you know, box score... Like each each week, the box score is kind of like the most interesting game of the previous, or the most interesting box score of the previous weekend, something to that mm. effect. Um, and we can certainly take recommendations in that regard. Um, yeah, we'll figure that out. Let's go. Oh, yeah, that could be tough. That could be tough. All right. Uh, colors are arbitrary. There's a red team and a black team this time, Bill. Uh, first downs, red team had 21. Black team had 34. Third down efficiency, red team was 8 of 14, black team was 6 of 15. Uh, the black team was 1 of 4 on fourth down. The red team had no fourth down conversion attempts. The red team had 391 total yards. The black team had 440. The red team had 272 uh, passing yards. The black team had 258. The red team was two, 20 of 29 passing. The black team was 31 of 52. The red team had 9.4 yards a pass. The black team averaged only 5 yards a pass. Uh, The red team had one interception. The black team did not. The red team had 119 yards rushing. The black team had 182. They both had 39 rushing attempts. That puts the red team at 3.1 yards a carry and the black team at 4.7 yards a clip. Um, Hey, look at this. The red team had 23 penalties (laughs) for 194 yards. The black team had five penalties for a pedestrian 41 yards. Um, The red team had two turnovers. The black team had one total. Uh, The red team lost a fumble. 
threw an interception. The black team lost a fumble. Time of possession, 33 minutes, 10 seconds for the red team, 26 minutes, 50 seconds for the black team. Bill, what happened in this football game? Um, well, I'm going to say that if the black team lost this game, uh, it would take something pretty ridiculous for them to have lost this game because um, they were, they're obviously explosive. They had... Okay, okay, um, you know what? I'm serious. Just stop right there. Repeat your sentence. Uh, something ridiculous would have happened? If for the black team to have lost this game. Yes. Okay, all right. Okay, we're so, done. Ready? Dateline, November 1st, 2015, Durham, North Carolina. Uh, the yeah. Miami players kept chucking the ball back and forth, trying to stay upright to somehow keep the game going just long enough to make something magical happen, and magic it was. Uh, Cord Elder took the Hurricanes' eighth lateral off a wild final kickoff return back for a touchdown to give Miami an unbelievable 30-27 to victory over number 22 Duke. Bill, I didn't even know if I wanted to give you this game because I thought you'd spot it, but damn, that was good. So, so that was good. Uh, I pulled up. Oh, oh that's okay. Yeah. So yeah, it took never. Okay. So never mind. Um, the really final good. play of this game. Son of a bitch. Never mind the final play of this game. Duke uh, lost the ball on downs at the Miami one, lost mm-hmm. a fumble at the Miami 13, kicked a field goal from the nine, missed a field goal from the 20, turned the ball over on downs again at the, the Miami 36. Um, yeah, and Miami had a safety. So Now, one thing before you get into your spiel, I actually screwed up by cutting you off because – but I just found it so hilarious that you hit the nail on the head because this is the one piece of information this game will forever be known for is that something extreme happened for, for Duke to lose the game. Uh, Ross Cunningham wrote it and said, I want to try something else and see how ba- Bill evaluates one of the things we have listed in the box scores but don't often pay as much attention to, penalties. Yeah. Since penalties are generally a similar amount for each team, we often overlook them. In the Miami-Duke game of 2015, we all remember the crazy eight lateral play at the end. Some of us also remember that comeback that Duke made in the fourth quarter to set up that play. But few recall that Miami, the red team, had the most penalties in a single game that year with 23 for 194. Miami was mostly penalized on defense. Robot Bill will probably deduct from the box score that Duke made a comeback since they ran many more plays, went for it four times on fourth down. But I'm interested to see how he evaluates this extra piece of information about penalty yards, not just in terms of how to incorporate it in deciding who won, but in determining if it skews other stats as well. For example, Duke had many more first downs without using uh, as much clock because they were often getting handed first downs due to pass interference calls, <laughs> face masks, etc. Uh, special teams played a big role too more so than just the last play. Kickoff return yards were roughly the same, surprisingly, but Duke also missed a field goal, botched a punt, and fumbled the opening kickoff to give Miami some fantastic field position. So I actually screwed that up because I didn't let you I didn't let you play in, but I also I didn't want to ask you specifically about penalty yards because I feel like that would be cheating. The point is you nailed the you nailed the the, the effing S out of this uh, uh, particular um, yeah, game this- narrative. But what so what is your what is your response here? Because I feel like the penalty yards, it's, it's kind of hard to figure out what they affected, right? Well, yeah, I mean, some penalties, we always, you know, coaches say penalties bad, but a lot of penalties, or some, some penalties at least, um, they show a certain level of aggression that usually pays off beyond whether you say you got a couple personal foul penalties. 
Okay. Uh, so like over the course of a season, there's very little like correlation between penalty yardage and success because you think of, well, think about those Raiders teams of the seventies that are the, the vaunted Raiders teams that, um, won a ton of games and committed a ton of penalties. It was, they were establishing a certain level of play. So yeah, p- penalties don't immediately correlate to much, but when you have no 194 yards to 41, um, but yeah, I mean, the reason I said that it, something crazy would have had that happened for the black team, i.e. Duke to lose was that, um, f- between first downs and, um, I mean, they had what 91 plays in 26 minutes. They were moving very quickly. They gained more yards, um, they were decent enough on third down. They weren't quite as good as the red team, but it was close enough. Um, especially since they made one up on fourth down, although they only went one for four on fourth down. Plus they, they had fewer turnovers and they had 153 fewer penalty yards. So you add all that up and, and unless a team bombed in special teams and, or bombed when it came to finishing drives, they're going to win that game. Well, Duke bombed in special teams and bombed in finishing drives. And that's why they lost. Um, they had, by my count, I think they had eight, it looks like eight scoring opportunities, quote unquote scoring opportunities, you know, trips inside the 40 to four for Miami. Um, and they won and they won and they lost and <laughs> it was very hard for them to lose that game, but they did. Um, I would open a challenge. I don't know if you're going to find a better, a better candidate than, than this particular game, but if you, if you can find something wonky with penalties, see if you can, see if you can throw Bill a little bit. I think the only deficiency in this one is that the game was the game is known for something so much bigger than that it's just uh i'm sure ross probably saw the disparity between those two right yeah no i mean they made sense so if if duke doesn't blow scoring opportunities then the last play doesn't even matter um yeah it took a lot for them to lose this game but in football sometimes you can figure out how to lose the game no matter what um bill we are gonna we're gonna run um I didn't even tease the stuff that I'm working on. You didn't tease the stuff you're working on. So we're going to come back next week. We're going to talk about, oh, gosh, I know we're going to talk about Texas. What else are we going to talk about? Um, well, you know, maybe maybe big-time podcast topic here, uh, changing ratings. I might have some numbers changes to talk about. But, no, this is – Oh, I don't, have, I don't have my siren pulled up. But what, 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 what? We changed that um, S&P. Maybe. Uh, if I can make it work, but no, well, 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 maybe <laughs> the next, what, three weeks or so. Yeah. We got basically three and a half weeks till the season starts. This is just about tying up loose ends. I got like yeah. seven more chapters of the book to write. I got to finish what two things for our big season preview package or one thing, depending. I've got one uh, thing yeah. I've got a Yeah. So we got a Texas feature coming up. Bill will be wrapping. It'll be the end of previews that we can kind of talk in totality. I, I mean, a spoiler alert, I guess we should talk about Bama sitting on top, and then um, we can talk about Texas. We're going to have to get some, some, like, ULM news in here just to balance everything out, or I'm going to feel really <laughs> weird about this podcast. Let's see. So the the podcasts that are happening between now and next week, uh, let's see. Oh, hey, tomorrow's Tennessee. How about that? There Tennessee, Florida, Mississippi State on Monday, Arkansas on Tuesday, LSU on Wednesday. I think we can probably find some topics there. Sounds good to me. All right, Bill, you want to come back and do this next week? I guess.